everybody, and welcome to the Whole Well Podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies to make a difference in the social impact world. My name is Krisha Martinez, one of the digital advertising whalers here at Whole Well, and your host for today's show. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. Today on the pod, we have Lisa Greer, author of Philanthropy Revolution and the writer of Philanthropy 51, a really popular newsletter. And we'll be talking all about her book today and really the way that philanthropy has changed over the years. So Lisa, how are you doing today? Hi, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, really excited to talk about your book. Um, I'll be honest, I wasn't able to read the entire thing, (laughs) Um, but I was able to skim it a little bit and I outlined some questions um, to get us talking a little bit and hopefully you can share some nuggets of wisdom. Right, happy to do that. Yeah, so just diving right in, what do you think are the most important things to think about when organizing an organization attempts to fundraise? I know we're gearing up for the end of the year and fundraising and all of that is really on people's minds, along with COVID, the pandemic, and also an election. Um, It's a lot for organizations to navigate. So do you have any tips or ideas there? Yeah, well, the whole book is full of tips like that, is is my (laughs) newsletter. Uh, So there's, there's a lot to it. I think the most important bottom line is that um, what I'm suggesting in philanthropy revolution, the reason it's called a revolution is because I'm suggesting that there's a completely different way that fundraisers interact with donors. Um, And and what that means is that the the typical way that fundraisers would interact with donors and have have been taught to do it for decades uh, is very uh, specific. And you go through these different um, uh, phases and you ask these specific questions and and, and I learned this the hard way when we first started, I, my husband and I first started being major donors. And um, in, in one case, I, I, I talked to somebody and said, okay, we're ready to give money to you. They hadn't asked us for the money, but we said, we're ready to give money. We understand that you, you need money to finish this capital campaign. And the answer I got, and so I said, we've decided to give you the final, in, in this case, million dollars. And I was told, I don't know what to say, is what they said to me. And I said, well, that's wow. very strange. What do you mean you don't know what to say? I guess. And I said, I guess I still remember it. Clarence Day was like nine years ago. And I said, well, I guess you could say thank you. And yeah. she said, well, but I'm not sure because I didn't make an ask. And at that point, I thought, oh, something's very wrong here. This is this is our new our foray into this world. And you're saying you can't accept money because you didn't go through a process where you made an ask. I don't understand that. And then we had another situation with a um a large hospital that we were giving money to, we called them also. And they had not made an ask because they didn't know us or whatever. And we uh, said, um, you know, we'd like to give you, we'd like to sponsor something at the so a research study, basically a research program at the hospital. And it took seven months for them to accept our money. They, um, wow. they, just, they just wouldn't, they couldn't understand how somebody could call them and ask for money. So I think that fundraisers get so stuck in going through the motions of you go from here to here to here, you call the person, you identify the person, you have a meeting with the person, you have a lunch with the person, that the idea of somebody just calling and saying, I want to give you money wasn't acceptable. It was such a shock that they couldn't respond to it. And at that point, I thought, well, there's something very wrong here that we need to help fix. So that's what I'm doing. Yeah, and that's a really interesting perspective, right? Because you usually think of the organizations being the ones to go out and ask for this money and looking for different ways to get, again, these very large gift donors. So to be on the flip side of that and think about, oh, we never asked for money and they're giving us money. Why? What do we do? And for it to take seven months, that's insane. 
Yeah, the whole thing was insane. And it's and and then I learned that it's not unusual. That uh, I, the only part that's unusual about all of it is that uh, I seem to be some of a glutton for punishment, I suppose, because I actually let it go on for that long. Whereas most other other donors that I've talked to said they would never have let it go on that long if they didn't weren't greeted with you know thank you so much. How can we help you? You know make the most of this donation. Uh, instead, uh, if they didn't get that response, they would just say, forget it and just go to a different organization. So uh, I decided um, about three years ago that I needed to stop being angry about that stuff and actually try and uh, bring the perspective of a donor of how does it feel to be a donor? And, and what are we here? And what is that like? And uh, all it, it has, the message really been resonating with fundraisers, as well as with other donors who really thought they were alone in feeling badly about those interactions with fundraisers. So, uh, you know, if you, if you dip your toe in the water and you want to be part of a nonprofit and you want to give to an organization or give to a cause, um, you don't want to feel like you've been put into some machine that has to go a certain way. You want to feel like you're having a relationship with somebody and that there's some authenticity and that you really care about this and that you're talking to somebody who really cares about whatever the mission is. And when, the, when any of those don't work, um, it, it's, it's very disconcerting and most donors will just leave. And that's why I believe that there's 130 million, excuse me, $130 billion sitting in donor advice funds right now that is increasing exponentially year after year. And that money for the most part isn't going anywhere. Uh, during COVID, a little more of it is going somewhere, but very, very small amounts. Because I think that somebody has a typical donor or would-be donor has, a, has one interaction like that with somebody and they just say, forget it. I'm just gonna put it in a donor advice fund, take the tax deduction and wait till some future day when maybe I meet a fundraiser who actually is uh, uh, you know, honest with me. So, wow. yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think you bring up a good point of kind of cultivating that relationship with donors, right? I think kind of where maybe this organization fumbled a little bit is not really knowing how to nurture that relationship. You know, it's usually, like I said, fundraisers going after donors, but when the donor comes to you, how do you approach that relationship? What do you do? Do you have any advice for organizations? Well, first of all, accept the money and say thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that, um, I, but I also think that organizations have a way of focusing on the same people over and over again, mm -hmm. uh, and based on, and they pick those people based on the same criteria. Uh, they figure that they, for the most part, have limited resources, and so they would, would rather spend, you know, their 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 uh, valuable time uh, really focusing on people who are likely to give a really big gift. And what that means is that lots and lots of people who would give mid-sized gifts or smaller gifts are really ignored, and they're actually put into sign of a they're kind of ghettoized actually into into this other place that oh no 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 somebody else deals with them. So I heard a story the other day about somebody who worked for a very large um, federation of, of nonprofits, and uh, she was told that she was in the this was about ten years ago, but she was in the organization that she was supposed to be responsible for the $1,000 to $5,000 gifts. That was her area. And she was given a list of people who had given in that range. And that's who she was supposed to be talking to when she's, and this is typically how it works as you probably know with, with nonprofits is that they're given this list of people that have been pre, previous donors or pre-selected or pre-qualified. And this is where you're supposed to call. So she developed a relationship with one, somebody that she was talking to where they talked several times and this uh, it was an older man and he was really nice. And he said, this is just great. And uh, so she was you know, very excited, but she didn't ask for the money at the beginning. She kind of went on with the, with the relationship and kind of helped build it. And after a while, a few conversations, he said, I'd like to give you $250,000. 
And she was elated and thrilled. And she went to the head of the organization and she said, or the head of the fundraising group. And she said, I just want to let you know that this guy just told me that he's going to give $250,000 instead of this one to $5,000. And isn't that amazing? And believe it or not, she was told, you can't do that. We have to start over with somebody who's in that category. So you need to call him and tell him that he has to talk to somebody else. And I thought, that is insane. So it's, I'm hearing these kinds of things. They're not unique to me. They're not unique to her. This stuff happens all the time. And I think if, if you didn't have your head full of, of information about um, uh, being told this is the way fundraising is done, maybe just a person on the street, let's say you, you, know, you were a stockbroker and decided to be doing fundraising and somebody gave you money, most people would just say, absolutely wonderful, this is great. But I think that these rules that we've put in um, for teaching fundraising for, for decades um, are, are just, they're, they're antiquated and they don't make sense and they weren't really, I don't think, fully baked ever. Uh, and they're really designed for this very small group of people, which I call the, you know, the 10 white guys, basically, which are the people who really keep most of these big institutions going. They've been, they're in their 70s, 80s or more, and they've been giving money forever. And those are the people that are really keeping those going. That's where most of the money comes from. And everybody else is kind of like, you yeah, know, okay, maybe there's somebody else who might be, we see as well, one of the, the older white guys later. Nothing against older white guys, but it's a small group of people that are keeping these organizations going. And that's dangerous for the organization because they're counting on people who are older and you, you can't count on their kids automatically giving where daddy gave. And they're also ignoring huge numbers of people who really feel good about when they donate and they're not able to because they're not treated as, uh, as real, authentic by the organizations. And really, and quite the contrary, we want we need the organizations to treat them in an authentic relationship and with, with integrity and with honesty. And, and, and then the whole thing will change. Yeah. And I love that emphasis that you put on kind of like the two, I guess, kind of tiers of donors. Like you said, you have this one group of people who essentially are kind of keeping the organization alive, right? They're doing, they're giving all the money, really just banking on that one group. But then we also think about maybe the everyday Joe, right? Who has money to give, wants to give, but is kind of falling in between the cracks, maybe because their gift isn't big enough, or maybe because they're not seen as a very high return on investment, ad speak is coming in. Um, but it's really interesting that you bring that up. Thanks. Uh, yeah, there's also another issue that happens with volunteers. There's, um, for some reason, it, it, it's not just the, the segregating between the one to $5,000 people and the five to whatever, and the small donor people and the mailing list people and the, and the people, the 10 guys running the organization, funding the organization, all of which are important. But for some reason, they're kept in little boxes where they're not supposed to go to the next box. And I think that's very strange. I, I, I think that the idea that volunteers are kept separate from donors is, in my opinion, it really crazy. Uh, volunteers are the most loyal to your organization. And to automatically assume that because they're a volunteer and they're not on my list of the high net worth people, mm -hmm. we don't talk to them about donating, that is crazy. And that's leaving money on the table. Do you have any uh, kind of aspect or reasoning why you think organizations are doing this? Well, again, I think it's because they've been taught in a way that is, um, I, I think that the traditional uh, uh, development people and the fundraising schools and the programs and the older development people who train the younger development people coming in, I think it's all very much just go get the money. And I think it's, it's figure out a way to get the money, go get the money. We have limited resources. It's really hard. It is hard for fundraisers to fundraise. That's, that's a given. Uh, but because it's, it's been taught in a way that you have to follow these steps, that is 
is uh, it, and, and pigeonholes people. And, and, and there's, there's a certain amount of, uh, of, of negativity, I think, towards volunteers, that they are a different class of people. And this class thing relative to fundraising is, I, 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 I just don't understand how people can see that, think that they can keep going the way they're going, where we ignore younger people, we ignore volunteers, we ignore, we don't let our board members talk to our staff people, we don't let our donors interact with our, you know, whatever, another group, our volunteers. Like, I don't know where that came from. I think it was probably an easier way of sort of sorting people originally, but I also think that it just sort of maybe grew organically that way, but then it just became the norm. And I think that the methods that we use in fundraising now are just, most of them are just arcane and they need to fix it. Yeah, and I'm interested in the organization that kind of recognizes everything that you're highlighting, right? Recognizing that we can't rely on this maybe group of 50 people to continue to fund our organizations. How do we talk to younger people, maybe those smaller donor donors? Um, how do we pitch to them? How do we get them to fundraise, really? Right, and that's a big question, right? Because it means that, that, that fundraisers who have a hard job, who are uh, have limited resources, whether you have 20 fundraisers at your organization or one, uh, that that you need to actually do two jobs now, right? Mm -hmm. Especially if it's if you have less, less uh, 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 fundraising staff. So you have to actually be interacting with the 10 guys or the 50 people or the whatever who are continuing to give money and keep trying to get a little more from them every year. Or maybe you can be satisfied with what you're getting every year. I always hear it as you have to get, tell them to, the one, one of the things I just can't stand is, is, is the comment of, well, give till it hurts. And then someone said, give till it hurts and then give a little bit more. Mm -hmm. That's just so negative. It, that is not appealing I, to a donor. That's not appealing. I don't know why people keep saying it, but I hear it all over the place. And so, but they focus on those people. And then they say uh, the, the, the younger people, well, they just, they can't give as much. And so, you know, we don't think we need to really focus on them. And, and so what happens is the, the, the reticence, I think, comes from the idea that talking to different people, people who you're not used to, those 10 or those 50 people, is it, it requires a different language. It requires a different set of tools and it requires actually listening to the other person and learning a little bit about the other person. So when there is an assumption that 30 year olds don't have money and that they need to be put in a junior board or they need to be uh, uh, you know, segregated in some way and that they is, is, is monolithic, it's a thing, is, is ridiculous. There are as many different type of 30 year olds as there are different types of 80 year olds and there's as many different type of donors as there are you know anything else so i don't know why there's this it, there, there's this idea that that a donor is this and not anything other than this and it's incredibly short-sighted and it is going to hurt our nonprofits long term in a very big way yeah and i love that you bring up the idea of uh give till it hurts and then give a little more at whole we always have a joke of give till it hurts and then give till it feels good, you know, kind of put that positive twist on it. Like you should be giving until you feel good about yourself, good that you're able to help others, help an organization. Right. And, and all the research points out that the giving feels good to people. So right. in, in my book, I talk about a, uh, a guy named David Levinson who runs something called Big Sunday in Los Angeles that helps people all over the city. They partnered with City Hall and they, uh, they, they do work for veterans and they do work for homeless people and they do work for everybody. But their whole premise is that volunteering and helping other people feel, feels good and that people really want to do it and that everybody can volunteer. So a homeless person can volunteer and help, you know, read a book somewhere or pick something up or, or you know, work giving food to other people. And it makes them feel valuable and it makes them feel important. And I think part of being a fundraiser 
and being, or being part of nonprofits, being anybody in, in, in a nonprofit organization, or really even just being a human, should recognize that, that it feels good and people like to give. People like to feel like they can give something no matter where they are in life. And when somebody is shot down because they're not on the list and they can't give, it actually feels worse than, than just that. It also feels like you're sticking a knife in me and saying, I don't have the right to feel good about giving. And it's time to feed the whales with a quick ad about Whole Whale University. This is our best online content packaged in courses. We're talking SEO, content marketing, Google ad grant, cybersecurity, and tons of webinars and other templates for you to use. You can buy them individually or as an annual subscription. Uh, we really put our best work in here. And if you're interested in the topics in this podcast that we tend to cover, we go a mile deep with these courses. That's wholewhale.com slash university. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, that must be a sucky feeling to try to give and then an organization is like, oh, well, maybe, you know, it's not that important or, you know, it's okay. Um, yeah, it happens a lot. It happens a lot where you're, uh, or, or, you know, I, look, there's, there's a whole issue with giving where people want to give, uh, organizations want you to give unrestricted funds. They want to get you to give administrative you know, money for operations costs. Uh, but a lot of donors and a lot of donors want to give to something specific. So that's a conversation, but it shouldn't be a, oh no, we don't want to go near that donor. They only want to give to particular programs. That doesn't mean, what the, somebody wrote to me something on Twitter the other day, that doesn't mean that they only want to give to programs that benefit them. Like, you know, I want to give to my school, but only to my child's class because I only want it to benefit my kid. I, that's, uh, that's crazy. But, but if you say, I only want to give to one section of it or one, something you're already doing, why not? Uh, but one of the things that was horrifying to me is, is finding out that about 80% of uh, fundraisers are uncomfortable asking for money for operations costs. Um, they don't want to touch anything administrative whatsoever. So they actually, when I, I dove into this a little bit, and it feels like they actually want the person at the other side of the table or other side of the Zoom screen, who they're asking for money, um, they 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 want that donor to believe that they work for free, and that's crazy. And in fact, everybody I know who's a donor knows a fair amount about business. Most of them do, not all, but most. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't want somebody there who's making less than they should be getting or making, you know, they, it, nonprofits there, no one ever said there's a rule that nonprofit people have to make less money. And in fact, really good development people at nonprofits make really good money and lots of, you know, and, and there, there is that, but the idea that they won't ask 80%, that's a big number, feel yeah. uncomfortable asking for money to pay for salaries. That's crazy. Wow. Do you have any insight into why this is, why people feel uncomfortable asking for that specific portion? Yeah, because I, 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 it sounds like it's for them. And uh, so they don't want it to be for them and they want to make it feel, they think that pretending that they work for free, it's, it makes them seem more altruistic. And, but, but it just makes, for me as a donor, it makes me feel like they're just lying. So yeah. it, 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 it really come back, comes back to bite them. And I, I also think though that a lot of them are, believe it or not, a lot of fundraisers are uncomfortable talking about money. So a lot of the asks that I have been given and a lot of the meetings I've had uh, it takes a very long time for the for the fundraiser to ask me for money when they really could have just asked me, but they go through a whole little, I'm not sure, and you can kind of, usually they come with a second person at the meeting who's a, a friend or a colleague, and they they kind of look at each other, and they're, they're, they're thinking like, and I'm, I'm two feet 
away from them, they should be able to see that I'm, I'm watching this and they'll kind of look, oh, is it time? Is it time? Or is it time to do it now? Just freaking ask me for money. So it's, it's really uh, a, an odd thing. And maybe every fundraiser should have some sort of a session with a psychologist before they take their job about, you know, are you, if you are truly uncomfortable asking for money, then you need to either find another line of work or you need to get over it. Yeah, and I can understand how that can be exhausting from the donor perspective. You know, you came to this meeting, you're ready to give money, and yet it still feels like a dance of uncomfortability. Like, can I ask? Should I ask? It's like, we're here. I'm here for you to ask. <laughs> but it's exactly right. And in fact, I think they should go one step further. And I think they should also say, uh, it, it, which I, I, I hear extremely rarely, uh, at, when you set up the meeting, they should say, we'd like to tell you about the organization and see if this is something you'd like to support or see if this is something that you'd like to contribute to, or this is something you'd like to help fund, or we have a project we want to talk to you about to see if you want to fund it. Be honest about it. Instead, 99% of the meetings, they say to me, oh, we just want to get to know you. You know what? I don't think they really want to get to know me because it always ends, almost always ends the same way. So what I really love and what I suggest in the book is, is one of the organizations that I'm very involved in, they actually say, we will tell you in advance if the conversation, we're going to get together for lunch or have a call and we'll tell you in advance, is that call or conversation about uh, asking for a donation or not? And is it to pick your brain honestly about how you feel and how you can help us with your background about how some issue with our organization or is it to ask you for money? And, and it's interesting because I used to think that those were separate things. And what I've learned is that some people will actually pretend to ask me about how do you feel about something we're doing at the organization, make it feel like I'm contributing in that way, but really it's just to let me have me uh, put my resistance down so that they can then ask me for money. And when that happens, it really feels like you've just been hit in the gut because you, you think that you're doing one thing and then you're doing something different. So to solve it, just tell people why you're having the meeting. I mean, it, it is not, and that's, it's assuming the other person is, I think is, is kind of dumb because your title says development officer, it says advancement, or it says, it says uh, a fundraiser, just tell them what you do. And this is my job. And I'm trying to do this because I believe in this organization. And I would love to tell you what I love about it and see if it's something that you might want to uh, financially contribute to. And the reason I'm saying financially contribute instead of contribute or support is because unless until I was around the block a little bit, I thought contribute to could mean volunteer uh, give, uh, suggest other people, uh, give them strategic advice or money. And I thought that support meant all, any of those things too. Or yeah, I'll support you. I'll put on Facebook that I really love your organization. Isn't that support? But it's code. So a lot of this stuff is in code and yeah. it's, I don't think it's helpful. Yeah. What would you say to somebody or a fundraiser or developer who really believes in this kind of code or language or dance that they go with donors, maybe thinking that maybe I don't want to be too forward or maybe I'll kind of lose my fish before it really gets on the hook? Yeah, I, I think I, I, what I, I, I think what I would say, what I do say is just try it this way. Although I have to say that 99% of the fundraisers I've spoken to are thrilled about this and say that at time to time they felt uncomfortable at these meetings that they also felt like they were they were doing something that having a fake conversation and they didn't like the way it made them feel as fundraisers so i'm actually giving them a uh, kind of a bit of release and giving them uh agency to be able to uh do it differently the way that they feel one of those issues though is they have to make sure that their heads of their that the board people and that the head of the organization whoever they report to is on the same page and for that reason we're trying to get the book to board members, as well as to uh, executive staff, so that they can, everybody can understand it's hard to raise money and, um, and, and that's the lifeblood of your organization. And if you, if you don't change, 
you may not have that organization to work for anymore. And if you really feel like you care about it, which you should, if you're involved in it as a donor or as a staff person or whatever, uh, then then let's figure out how to make this organization the best it can be. Let's let's create a way that it can uh, succeed with its mission. It can help as many people or causes or whatever as possible, and everybody can feel good about it. Yeah, and I think this touches on a really good point of donor fatigue. I think oftentimes when you think of donor fatigue, you think of hitting the same people, like touching base with the same people, and that donor just gets tired of hearing from you over and over again. Um, but I think this is a really great perspective on a different kind of donor fatigue, which comes from being indirect, from being kind of dancing around the idea of wanting money, which is essentially your job function, like you said. Do you have any other tips from the donor perspective of what this kind of fatigue feels like and what you wish organizations would have done better? Oh my goodness. Well, I, I have a whole book full of those uh, <laughs> and, and also those of my friends. So there's a whole lot. Uh, I, I, one of the biggest pieces that I, uh, that I talk about and that I think has resonated with our readers is uh, that, that I'll have these conversations, new conversations with people. Uh, even, however many times I have a conversation and I, I don't think it's about fundraising, it's really about getting to know me. And then it ends with, a money, with, ends with an ask. For some reason, if the person's really nice on the phone or I somehow connect with them, I still keep having those meetings and hoping for a different result. We know that's you know, the definition of a crazy person, but I, I, I go into them because occasionally I will meet somebody who really does become a friend, becomes mm -hmm. somebody who, yes, you're a fundraiser, yes, I'm a donor, but we can become friends. And I have one friend who was told very clearly as a fundraiser that she could not, actually she was, she was a program person and the fundraising people told her that she couldn't meet with me without a fundraiser being present. And she's my friend, and that was awful. So, I, I, but, but these, these meetings when I have them, so very often I, I will wanna to get to know the person there. They will wanna to get to know me, we hope. And if they're really good at performing, uh, many times they will make me feel like they care and then we'll talk about their kids and my kids and what we do and what, what turns us on and all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And then they'll ask me for money. And then I feel like that last hour and a half was mm. nothing. I feel like it was like, it was it, that all of those words that were said meant nothing, that they were all just a way of luring me in like a fish and until they could get my money. And then the rest of it is just gone. And that is a horrible, horrible feeling. And I've had that feeling many, many times. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, um, and it, it's like I said, I still dive into it because I hope that occasionally along the way, I'm going to meet somebody who's passionate about what they do. And that's the most important thing. And so they want to bring me into their world and share their passion as opposed to they don't, the other perspective, which is that where I think a lot of fundraisers just want to see me and other donors as a piggy bank. So we're an inanimate object that you can just smash and get the money out of and say goodbye. So it's, uh, but, but I think it, it, it all boils down to trying to understand how a donor feels and a lot of, and, and people rarely ask that other than you know, do they feel like giving me money or not? But but really, like, what are they about? And so so in these times, so if you want to ask a donor, for example, you want to maintain a relationship with them past the time of them giving, and you feel like you still want to connect with them, obviously you don't ask them for money every time. You give them updates on what's going on with the organization, and that's it. And the more you don't ask them for money, the more connected they're actually going to be. So it's, it's and, and eventually many of them will just say, you know what, I, I, that project sounds interesting. How much cost for me to get involved in that? And then you don't say, well, I didn't make, give you an ask. Uh, you actually say, thank you very much. And because that's the idea is you want them connected with you 
in the long term. And you want it to be a real relationship. And everybody understands, I understand that you are getting paid to raise money for this organization. But I also understand that you're doing that because you really care about what the organization does. And I want to be there with you. And I happen to be in a position where I can help fund that and make that a reality. Let's work together on making that happen. Yeah, and I love that you brought it kind of full circle to the beginning of our conversation where you had this relationship with a organization, let's say hypothetical organization, and you wanted to give more money, but at that point you weren't talking to the right person. So I think it brings up a really good point of building that relationship with your donors, even when you're not asking for money, you know, like you said, you guys aren't, we aren't inanimate objects that you can just smash for money and hopefully $10,000 will come out, you know, like right. we are also people that want to give and help and give till it feels good. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And also, I, I think that there is this idea on the part of many fundraisers that, oh, the donor is on this pedestal. And there are some donors that want to be on a pedestal, but most of them don't. Most of them want to be a part. They don't want to be on a pedestal. So, but if you treat them like an alien, like I could never, I've had people say to me, I could never imagine, I don't have a lot of money and I could never imagine being a donor. Well, that's just wrong. Like I said earlier, everybody can donate something. Everybody contributes something. And and so it's, it's but by segmenting yourself and saying, I'm in a different class, I'm putting myself in a different class as a different type of being than you are, then it's very hard to care about how I feel because you 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 think I'm like an alien. And how would I know how the alien feels? And that's that we have to break that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great stopping point. <laughs> I think you gave a lot of really great gems in there on one, the different ways to pitch younger donors. Um, the way to kind of overcome donor fatigue and a different perspective of donor fatigue, right? Not just touching base with the same person over and over, but being direct with your ask and your wants. And also thinking about cultivating and building that relationship, even when you're not asking for money so that it can come to the point where a donor feels the need, the want to give you this money to help your organization and its mission. By the way, one other little, um, I, I could call it a trick, but it's that's a bad word because it isn't a trick. It's, uh, it's just a, a, a method is uh, if you call donors and you really are listening to them, like you actually are listening to what they say and say, how are you doing? Especially during difficult times like now, mm -hmm. and they answer you and you think of something that can help them, but it's not by your by virtue of your organization. They need uh, you know, something medical or they need food or they have somebody with it, whatever it is, some mm -hmm. sort of issue. And you give them the name of another organization. Let me turn you on to so-and-so at this other organization and they might be able to help you because this is what they do. That goes a really long way because that is saying, I really care about you and not just about in relation to this, in relation to getting that money from, from my organization. Yeah. And it goes deeper than just, I guess, losing a donor and putting pushing them to another organization. It's like you said, trying to show care and empathy for people, especially like you said, during these hard times, it's really difficult right now. Right. So what, what you just said, like it, losing a donor, it's perceived as losing a donor. It's not. It's actually, at, it's actually strengthening the bond between you and that donor by saying, I am not afraid to help you as a whole person. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much, Lisa, for dropping yeah. all of these gems. I think some organizations can really get a really good perspective that I don't think fundraisers, even advertisers like myself can get from being on the organization. Uh, we're not done yet. We're on to my favorite part, which is our rapid fire round. Okay. <laughs> So I have a list of like 10-ish questions. Um, I usually tell our guests that they have about 30 seconds to answer, but no pressure. <laughs> Are okay. you ready to get started? I'm ready. Cool. Uh, what's one tech tool or website that you or your organization has started using in the last year? 
Well, I, I guess I have to have the same answer as everybody else, which is Zoom. And uh, I've tried a couple other um, uh, products that are like Zoom that are not as good, uh, but Zoom still, things have to change and I still get worried about Zoom bombing and things like that. And so uh, I, I don't think any of them are perfect, uh, but obviously it's something I, I, I don't think anybody these days can say that they don't, they don't use something like Zoom. So there's that. Uh, another piece I wanted to give web-based basically is um, I started to read the McKinsey uh, report online on a regular basis, and it's got some fantastic stuff, especially about uh, uh, philanthropy and fundraising and economics. And uh, it's, I just discovered that a few months ago, so I highly recommend it. Yeah, great stuff. Are there any tech issues you're battling with right now? Uh, tech issues that I went? You're battling with. Oh, well, uh, yeah, Zoom uh, <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> So yeah, it, it feels like as they change it and you know, they, they try and keep it more secure, you have to kind of be with them and figure out what kind of settings do I now need to change differently? And because we're all moving so fast from Zoom to Zoom, uh, it's, it's, it becomes a little bit difficult. I also learned uh, uh, the hard way that in most Zoom meetings, uh, if, if you have a chat going on, if I'm doing like a webinar or a, 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 a digital virtual interview, um, I, it's hard for me to talk on the screen and uh, also read all the chat. And in some questions, the one cases, there's a Q&A separate from the chat. So those are both going on while I'm in the middle of it. And I and then I think to myself, well, on the chat part, I can just go back to that later and see what the questions were. And that's interesting. And then what I learned is more often than not, the entire chat is erased as soon as you leave the Zoom room. Uh, and so that's been a real problem. And I wish more people knew about it. And, I think in the future, I might have somebody just cut and paste all the chat for me before it turns off. But it, as soon as somebody turns it off, it's gone. Now, the Q&A evidently is a little easier to keep. Mm, yeah, and I find that oftentimes the chat is where a lot of the good question and conversation is, right? And they do. And the idea that you spend this time doing this and 100 people are asking questions and then you never get to know what they even were is, is kind of disturbing. So yeah. uh, I will, uh, I, I'm going to keep trying. Anyway, everybody should be aware of that. Yeah, good tip. <laughs> next time you're doing a webinar, save the chat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's coming in the next year that has you most excited? Gosh, I hope, I, I don't know what's coming in the next year. Uh, for sure, obviously, there's no certainty these days. But uh, I, I am hoping that there's an end to COVID. And I am, what is exciting for me about it is that the innovation that has come to a lot of the forced innovation uh, that, that, has that has happened during COVID, where people have had to talk about what I call the M word, which is merger, or they've taught, they have to learn how to use technologies and feel comfortable doing things online and they don't have to jump on a plane every single time, or they are able to seriously look at how their boards are com comprised uh, because they have a moment to breathe. I hope that that translates into the post-COVID world and that people don't go back to what they were doing. I, I can't imagine that they will go back to what they were doing, but they might. And I hope that that's not the case. Yeah, I agree. A lot of innovation has come from just the need for it. Um, and hopefully we can learn from it. <laughs> right. Can you talk about a mistake you made early in your career that shapes the way you do things now? So uh, I, I, I'm going to start, I've had a lot of careers, so I'll start with my sort of career as a donor, that, that part. And, and at the beginning, I was kind of wide-eyed and didn't really, I just thought, I assumed that everybody was uh, intelligent and that everybody who I interacted with was devoted to the organization. And I assumed that if somebody asked me for money, that it was going to go to the right place. Mm -hmm. And I assumed that 
Uh, I also assumed that if I made a large gift that I had to pay it. And I, I learned all of those things were not right. Uh, some of them were right sometimes, uh, but, but one of the biggest ones was uh, I, I made a large uh, gift and then somebody said to me, oh, I heard you made that gift. It's another donor of the organization. You did do it over five years, didn't you? And I hadn't thought of that because nobody had told me that. So that was a big giant lesson. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> a really good lesson to learn. Yeah. One year yeah. versus five is pretty important. Yeah. Do you think NGOs can successfully go out of business? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, uh, there's, well, actually there's, a, what is it, the, the, the large uh, foundation that's going out of business now? Is it Feeney, I believe? Uh, but, but you can, uh, who's donated billions of dollars and has now said, I want to spend it before I die. Uh, which is really incredible. Um, so, and and everybody that that supports. But the but I think that uh, most in most cases, uh, I, I, a funny story. Uh, I, I said to somebody at one point, an, an existing somebody who'd been a donor for a long time, and I was just getting going. And I said, so what do I do when all these people call about these things, and I just can't give to everybody? And uh, and he said, well, you can do what uh, this this one person I forgot was somebody in the entertainment industry said, and his daughter had MS. And he said, and his answer to everybody was, you know what, that sounds fascinating and really interesting. And I'd love to know more about it, but when there's a cure for MS, I'm all in, give me a call. And I thought that was really, really smart because everything he was giving was to MS because of his daughter. And that made, that made tons of sense. It's a little bit of, you know, of course that can be misused and you, you might not even be honest about it, but, and I, I think most people can give to more than one thing. But, but the idea was that in that was that if MS is cured, then I then have the freedom to go support other kinds of things because the MS association would no longer need to exist or they would exist in a different way. So I think that absolutely can happen. And I think that most organizations should be trying to solve a problem. And if they can solve it or they can solve it by uh, partnering with somebody else or merging with somebody else, then, then they should because the the, the, the accent and the emphasis should be on the mission. It shouldn't be on, it, it can also be on keeping people's jobs, but I think it more, most importantly, it really, and the donor, from a donor perspective, you want it to be on the mission. That's what they should be focused on. Definitely. Let's say you had a hot tub time machine back to the beginning of your work. What advice would you give yourself? Uh, wow. I probably to, uh, uh, to just not make, not assume anything. I think that would be the most important thing is to, to just you know, learn before I give anything. And uh, one of the things I like to give myself is, which I still haven't learned is how to say no better. Uh, yeah. I'm not very good at that, but yeah. yeah. Hopefully all fundraisers out there don't call me in that next five seconds, so thank you. <laughs> uh, what's something you think you or your organization should stop doing? Yeah, uh, treating donors like piggy banks or treating donors like checkbooks. I used to say checkbooks all the time, but but I also wrote an article in my uh, Philanthropy 451 blog about how you really have to stop saying checkbook because I think it's they just did, I think it's like 11% of, of donations come from checks or cash now. So, uh, so and most people I know don't carry a checkbook, uh, even though I've had arguments with people and you'll see some of that in the book who say it, who say yes everybody has a checkbook now, which I just say is just not true. But but some people want to I guess if you have a checkbook maybe you want to believe that other people bring their checkbooks to events um, and 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 to whatever. But but I think that the, 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 the donors, the, the fundraisers need to see uh, donors as like 
it's kind of, they do whatever they do in us magazine or people magazine. They say celebrities, they're just like us. It's sort of like, we're actually human beings just like you. And yeah. I think the more that we use that as the center of our, our thought process and how we interact with uh, how fundraisers interact with donors, the better off everybody will be. And let's also say you had a Harry Potter wand for the industry. What would it do? Oh, it would take a big giant stop for a few minutes, like freeze everybody <laughs> like a sci-fi thing and say, okay, now all the rules are different. And yeah. you're now going to put all of that other stuff behind you and let's let's rebuild it. Some of what we have already is good. Some of it isn't, but let's rebuild how we, how we teach people how to do philanthropy and how we ask for money. And for that, uh, an example of that is uh, uh, I've seen more and more organizations lately hiring fundraisers, uh, smart organizations who don't have fundraising experience but are really smart in other areas. Yeah. And I think they're doing it on purpose because they can't stand this idea of it being this sort of rote thing that it has to be this way and it should be this way. It's no, it should be what gets us to our mission to solve our problem and to get us to, to support our mission. And it should be something that, that uh, appreciates other people and everything that they do. That's the only should that they should have, that they, that they would have. They don't, but, but the idea of it has to be this certain way, it's almost like, it's all, I think some organizations, some, some um, uh, NGOs are thinking it's easier to train somebody, retrain somebody in this authentic uh, integrity oriented kind of way than it is to have to unlearn them, you know, take, have them unlearn the things that they've already learned. So that is interesting and that should be considered a threat to fundraisers. Uh, for professional fundraisers, and they think they need to look at that and say, oh, okay, maybe maybe this is a, 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 you know, COVID isn't the most pleasant thing to push us towards innovation and thinking of things differently. We have we have to just think of things differently, and, and all the signs are there. Yeah. And how did you get started in the social impact space? Uh, well, I, I've been involved in, really, as a volunteer for years and years and years. Uh, the part that's new is being a donor. Uh, I used to be the person who was saying I didn't have the money, but could I do something? Or could I donate a small amount of money and could I volunteer? Uh, I'm very, I've always been, since I was a kid, very interested in actually doing the work. And uh, so when we became fortunate enough and had a liquidity event that allowed us to be large donors, uh, it was obvious that we would continue to, uh, that we would donate bigger and we would do, try and provide more good to the world. So that, so it was like, it was a little bit started as a young kid and then it got kind of uh, turned into warp speed when we ended up having uh, enough funds to be able to do that. Yeah. And what piece of advice did your parents give that you did or didn't follow? Oh, uh, well, my father uh, uh, believed that, and, and my mom did, I think a fair amount too, but that women in, in particular, that women really needed to just go to college to go get what they called an MRS degree and mm -hmm. to be married. And that, you know, we just couldn't, there were a lot of things we couldn't do. So yes. I absolutely didn't follow that. In fact, the fact that my father said that has motivated almost everything else that I've done. Yeah, yeah, I hear you on that one. <laughs> um, and finally, and probably my favorite question is, what advice would you give college grads looking to enter the social impact sector? Ah. Well, the first thing is to uh, uh, realize that, yes, you can make a difference. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's lots of ways to make a difference. And don't find what's your passion. That's what they say for any job, too. Go find your passion. So within the social impact sector, go find your passion. And if you find two or three or four passions, that's fine. In fact, that's probably better. And then go try and find work in those areas. Ideally, starting as a volunteer, I think, is great. Uh, but also studying up on you know, my book and other books. There's, there's tons of books about fundraising and, and creating your own opinion about 
kind of what makes sense to you. So not assuming that it is, you know, this is the way torts are taught in law school and it has to be that way. This is something that is all about how can we do better? And so if you find something that says, a book that says you have to do it this way through these steps, I think as a college student, when you're coming out of college and you're open-minded and you're used to really, uh, really getting diving deep down in subjects, to look at that and say, you know what, that's not going to work on people like me and that's not going to work on people like my friends, but I think that the world should be a better place and I think that a lot of these, uh, these, these uh, organizations should do better, so I'm going to uh, actually do the opposite of what this book says and I'm going to go prove that they're wrong. Uh, and, and, but having that sort of fresh approach and, uh, and, and really having that sort of uh, body and soul determination to help something in the world is something that every nonprofit needs and you just have to find the right match. And the other piece I would say is that there is an assumption that nonprofits don't pay any money and you have to take less money to work for a nonprofit. And in most cases, that is just not true. So if you want to compare it to Goldman Sachs or to being a lawyer or whatever, maybe. But if you compare it to most jobs, it's not true. And to realize that over 10% of the population in the United States, of the working population, work for nonprofits is, that's, it's, 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 we're not this, I always thought we were this teeny little 2% minuscule thing. We're not, we're part of the GDP. We're part of, part of really the world. And that's just the people who work for the nonprofits, the donors for the nonprofits and the volunteers are dramatically more trying to find that number. Uh, if any of your viewers or listeners know the number, that'd be great to know. But I'm guessing probably half the population, maybe more, has something to do with a nonprofit and, and really has some vested interest in that nonprofit succeeding. So it is a great place for a college graduate to go into. Yeah, well, that wraps up my rapid fire round. Um, that was great, you did great. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, so, and that also ends our podcast. So where can people find you? Right. Uh, so philanthropyrevolution.com is my website. That'll take you to uh, an explanation of the book and also a link to sign up for my newsletters that come out about once a week, uh, as well as to, um, I do kind of slightly snarky things on Twitter when I, somebody emails me with something ridiculous. And so I'll put that there so you could follow my Twitter feed too. Uh, and uh, the most important piece is, is, I think, really getting the book and going through it because it has not only my stories, it has stories from about 40 other donors and nonprofit leaders and academics. And then it also has specific instructions of instead of doing this, try and do it this way. So uh, that would be great if you're, if you're uh, uh, people who are watching or, or listening to this will uh, go out there and do one of those things. Uh, I'm there and I'm loving to interact. So any kind of comments you want to send, please do. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you again for coming on the show, Lisa. It was a pleasure. Thank you. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to Greg Thomas Music.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 